This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Dan Finlay, the co-founder of MetaMask and Chief Web3 Ethos Officer at Consensus. MetaMask is a crypto wallet and has become a critical piece of Web3 infrastructure with over 30 million users around the world. We've likely all used MetaMask at some point, so I was excited to understand Dan's philosophical approach and long-term vision for the product, as well as talk to him about the challenges of securing digital assets and how they combat those with MetaMask. Please enjoy my conversation with Dan Finlay. So I'm excited to sit down with you, Dan. I thought a fun place to start this conversation because I've heard you in the past discuss hyperlinks. And it's a funny topic, but when you discussed it, I love the word you use. I found it optimistic, inspiring. As someone who built just the idea of clicking a link and moving across the internet, it really is cool when you think about it. However, being in crypto and NFTs and DeFi, links now terrify me in general, that you're afraid that now when I click a link and I have self-custody of assets, I could do something that exposes a lot of value to risk. And so suddenly that awe-inspiring part of the internet has come with this fear and worry. So I thought that'd be kind of a fun place to start your view of hyperlinks and self-security, and we'll take it from there. It's terrible to hear that hyperlinks has been tinged by self-custody. The web is probably the coolest thing that has ever been built on computers today. And I mean web browsers. And of course, all the things built around the web is also great, but there's nothing as open-ended and free as the web browser today. You can write five lines of HTML code and have a website and just click a link. And no matter what device you're on, you can be in somebody else's world seeing what they're into and what they're all about. And who knows, getting into a whole new economy if you're getting into Web3. When we made MetaMask, one of our goals was to make it so you could get onboarded with just a link because it's this mere text. But no matter where you type one of these magic incantations, you can just tap it, click it, and suddenly you're there. And there's something so democratic about being able to have experiences that are completely portable. That was always really important to us. And I think the web browser is as successful as it is because it keeps you safe to some degree. Web browsers aren't perfect. Obviously, they enabled the whole surveillance norm of today. All the problems with Web 2 really are a side effect of how browsers are built. But I defy anybody to show another computing platform that's as safe for exploring. And I think that that's a really, really precious thing. And I think that we should always be looking for opportunities to rekindle that sense of play with computers. Computers are extensions of us. They kind of make us into cyborgs of the mind and global <laughs> beings. 
we should be able to interact with people all over the world and have confidence that we're being safe. It's MetaMask's job and any wallet's job to make sure that when you're interacting with something you don't trust, that you are not making mistakes. And obviously we have a ways to go with that because walking this line where we want to let you do cool things with what you have, but also we don't want you to make bigger mistakes than you would like to make. So that's an ongoing journey for both making transactions more readable and helping you split up your authority and self-limit yourself. You should be confident that you can be tired at the end of a long day, maybe had a couple drinks, use your computer to <laughs> engage in risky behavior and still come out okay on the other end. I don't think that's too much to ask. I think that we are just building out all the tools to make that more and more possible. Yeah, I think perhaps the feeling is more nuanced in the sense that I think it's because on Twitter, you read these horrible stories. I clicked a link and I lost all my assets. And every time they happen, I try to read them to educate myself what happened. And it's never, you just opened up MetaMask and your money got drained. It's never that simple. It's usually a complex level of things. And so I think that that fear, if I were to reframe it, the thing I love is the ownership and accountability lets you explore this amazing internet playground in a completely different way. I never would have done any of these awkward, weird things, vote, work with groups, lend money, trade stuff. None of this stuff would have happened if not for me getting a MetaMask wallet. I am a huge fan of it. I think it is the notion that, especially with the value, like with great power comes responsibility. I think that's the issue. I heard the Spider-Man quote coming. I was like, you can't help it. <laughs> you feel it when you use it, I guess. So maybe elaborate more on the notion that I think maybe a good place to start is I'm excited to get into the history of MetaMask, but just the readableness of when you sign a contract, break it down for us of what you're actually doing for the non-technical, because it's not obvious what we're actually pressing when we say yes. It's a failure of ours, and I'll share it with the Ethereum ecosystem, that it's not more readable. Inherently, an Ethereum smart contract is responsible for its own state, and it can send messages, but other contracts, if they're well-designed, should not be vulnerable to a rogue contract out there. So when you're interacting with a smart contract with MetaMask, you always see a recipient contract. And that recipient is going to do whatever it's going to do. So if it's a token, it's going to potentially affect your balance of that token. If it's a voting contract, it's potentially going to cast your vote with that contract. But the thing that can build confidence, and it's obviously a failure of our communication and education and hopefully MetaMask Learn can help educate people there, is that if you interact with a third-party smart contract and you only interact with it, you're fine. The danger is when you are granting permissions from a contract you do care about. And those permissions can be transitive. So when you sell some NFTs on OpenSea, you grant allowances from those to OpenSea, and now the OpenSea permissions model are sensitive. So now if you sign an OpenSea bid signature, you can potentially give those same NFTs away. So while we can have a really good confirmation for an NFT allowance, if you grant that to a second contract, you hope that that contract also has a very readable allowance. So when OpenSea migrated from the Wyvern contracts to Seaport, they gained a lot of readability. Their bids are strictly more readable than they were before, but it was a new kind of signature and it was unfamiliar to people. And we learned there's kind of a mental gap where people would assume that a signature is maybe not sensitive when a transaction is. 
And that's actually not any kind of guarantee. It really comes down to the contract that's going to interpret that signature. And OpenSea is being a little ahead of the curve using readable EIP 712 signatures that you can read them. You can go down, you can see each NFT that it's offering for sale. But because it doesn't look exactly like a transaction, a lot of people looked at it and said, who knows what that could possibly be? I hear that I'm going to get a free NFT or something. There's a lot of reasons that a person might not look a little closer. A lot of times it's just not having confidence that they could understand what they're looking at. And yeah, so that's kind of one of the responsibilities of a wallet is make sure that they can understand what the hell they're doing, even if what they're doing is something you never anticipated when you first built the software. That's why things like transaction simulation are getting more popular right now, because it can give you some more chances to catch if something's just going to run away with your NFTs. It's not a guarantee though, because if you're signing a signature, well, that's not even a transaction that's going to happen right now. So a simulation isn't necessarily going to catch that. You need other strategies also. We are working with OpenSea on solutions there, hopefully some good news too. There's a bit of a cat and mouse game, but where we are trying to tend towards generalized solutions that give users strong strategies that hopefully we can educate them about through tools like MetaMask Learn, where they can kind of interactively prepare themselves and say, ah, as long as I don't grant permissions from things I care about, I should be good. And if we educate you properly, you should be able to go around, use the web <laughs> casually again, click links, have fun the way the web is meant to be. And through a combination of maybe not putting your most sensitive things on your hot account and knowing how to read the permissions that you are citing, you should be able to have a really high degree of confidence that you're using the web safely. And so as MetaMask Learn, maybe give us the elevator pitch on what that is. I'm curious if that was born out of MetaMask's desire to onboard more people and teach them how to use wallets, or if it was, wow, even the people using this clearly when you see a headline, it's being misinterpreted of, oh, my MetaMask got drained. And you're like, well, like, what did you actually do in permission before that happened? We obviously have always strived to make the product just usable out of the box. And I think the long-term fantasy is that you can just start using it and have a good sense of what's going on. But the reality is that we were seeing a gap through our support requests between people who just got dropped into the product and then expert users. There was this trove of people who are trying to figure out how this all works and they're trying to make sense of Web3. They maybe don't have a friend who's guiding them through it and they needed just a little extra help navigating through it. So yeah, our community team put their heads together and came up with this awesome platform where you actually get put through interactive exercises. It's a little abstract. It's not totally MetaMask specific, but it's introducing you to the concepts of having a self-custodial digital asset as you interact with the website the kinds of interactions you should expect, sending an asset, granting an allowance, minting an NFT, things like that. It's funny because one of the jokes on Twitter is if like you want to summon all the bots in the world, you just use the word MetaMask support. It's because the product is so widely used and important to all these ecosystems. That's why it's such an attack vector for people is they know people are using it who may not be as educated, which is why Learn is such an important protocol. Was that kind of the driver? Is that you're trying to reach out to that community to help them get ahead of the curve? I mean, user safety is definitely part of it, but it's not just user safety. It's also user familiarity and comfort. So yeah, we want people to understand how to use the product safely, but to do that, they have to have a mental model of how the product works at all. So it's really not just a couple security tips. It's trying to develop a sense of 
how you should use this tool and how you can expect to use it around the web. I'm curious to get your thoughts, a kind of a higher level theme of when people talk about wallets or blockchain technology, I feel like there's a spectrum, but there's usually two distinct camps. One is I need to abstract all this away. You can't know anything. It has to be a username and a password and that's it. No seed phrases, no signing, no permissioning, none of that stuff or else people won't adopt it. But then people will be like, well, the whole point of this is that this allows this whole new world to play with when you have these tools. So how do you think about that when you're building such a general purpose solution? We all want simplicity. <laughs> we all want adoption. And I think that sometimes we can feel a little impatient about it. We can say like, look, just don't show the annoying stuff, make it like we're used to, and it'll all be great. There's a great chart of design evolution. It's like the optimism of ignorance, and then there's the trove of knowledge, and then eventually there's enlightened simplicity. I think that a lot of people don't want to go through the trove of knowledge where you wade through all the complexities that there are to earn yourself an elegantly simple solution. If we do it right, I think that Web3 and decentralized protocols can achieve greater simplicity, versatility, and user empowerment than Web2 approaches, I think that it's just harder to lay the foundations because it hasn't been done yet. We're hacking through the vines of unexplored terrain. And so sometimes when people want to simplify, they regress to patterns they're familiar with, like username and password. Like you said, that means you're inheriting some of the issues of those previous systems. And I think that sometimes in the past, when people have chosen to abstract things away, let's say gas payment, the naive solution is to just subsidize it for all your users. Most wallets that have tried that eventually realized that that gets expensive during bull runs. So that's like a good example of, I think what people are starting to realize is it's not that you want to subsidize every transaction, but you do want to make it possible to subsidize transactions at least. And I think that EIP 4337 reflects some of that knowledge, that hard-earned knowledge, where if you want to eliminate gas payment from the user's mind, you shouldn't just pay for it. You should create the tools, which may be sophisticated, that allow that cost to be allocated to where someone's willing to subsidize it. And now users can have a simple experience, but it's because you did the legwork of establishing APIs and relationships and developer education necessary to establish new patterns. I'm thinking about, I have horrible words, which is kind of like what I call the real world and the world we live in sometimes. And it feels like in the real world, we've just become desensitized to hacks, to security breaches, to passwords being changed. You hear about how many systems at corporate functions, because you make someone change a password every five days or 30 days, it's just password one, two, three, one, two, three, four. They're so password security exhausted. They're used to credit cards, financial systems being hacked and really having no follow-up on like that anyone was punished for it. And then we have this world where we're, to your point, hacking through the forest and thinking about it in a different way. I'm curious to get your take on how people feel about just general computer security versus Web3 security. Another one for your pile of examples at the beginning would be like terms of service and a GDPR ULAs where it's like, we just click through stuff because it is meaningless. So people are used to computers being this thin veneer on top of what's basically centralized institutions that are generally trying to keep themselves in play. And so, yeah, they're going to insure you against fraud to some extent, and they're going to insulate you against your identity theft as much as possible. And when you install some software, yeah, you'll get some viruses every once in a while, but 
what's the worst thing you had on your computer anyways the average person you may get yourself some uh, ransomware but the average person maybe some family photos or something but suddenly we're in this world where it's oh well on your hard drive you had some crypto keys now those are actually worth money and just directly hackers suddenly have this much more potent incentive to undermine your computer system and suddenly you have stakes to keep your computer safe and so the game is just totally different we were playing in this world where we had computers but we were using them for online commerce but it was like up to your credit limit so it's like it was never getting bigger than some amount at a time but as we start to say hey well crypto is in many ways a question can we reinvent society on computers and that invites us to ask, well, how safe can your computers actually be? If you actually want to do something that's worth a trillion dollars on computers and have computers automating that, and those computers need to be a trillion dollars safe because people are going to spend exactly how much is at stake trying to get the money that's available. So yeah, how has it changed from Web 2 to Web 3? Yeah, things matter now on the computer, and this is a totally different environment. And I think that that's cool because I think that computers are powerful enough tools they deserve to be treated seriously. And we should be asking questions like, how do you keep a computer secure? And for some people that may be multi-sig and for some that may be social recovery or limited permissions. But even if you've got limited permissions and multi-sig and social recovery, you're still implying that each one of those devices is at least somewhat secure. So there's still even take all of the crypto strategies we've got for granted, there's still a need for us to get computer security better. And every single way that we get computer security better, we're able to raise the tides of the whole crypto sphere. Do you ever wish the stakes were lower or are the stakes higher bringing people to care so much about this? Like I think about how important MetaMask is in the ecosystem. I just wonder if it wasn't so hard, if it was really expensive, you wouldn't be facing such threats, but then maybe the value wouldn't be there. And if it was lower stakes, maybe it would be easier. But will we ever push ourselves to figure out how to secure billions of dollars of value? Yeah, I would love it if the stakes could be low, but we could get the money to develop safe computer systems. <laughs> I wish those were not seemingly mutually exclusive. It seems like the money to get this work done is largely coming from the potential of financial upside. People have been talking about making more secure computer systems and secure operating systems for a long time. We were all like, oh, well, good enough. The two philosophies, either Android, you just shrug and install whatever you want, or do iOS and you just trust that their review process is going to be safe. And it demonstrably doesn't. Android's making some serious strides with its permission system. Don't get me wrong. But can we put some gas on the fire of computer safety, especially distributed computer safety? I don't know if we get a choice. It kind of seems like the hand that we've been dealt is an opportunity to take some very, very hot, spicy fire and use it for some good. And so I think we're just trying to build as swiftly as we can with that. So take us back to how did we get here? I think maybe the founding story of MetaMask and how you got into the crypto would be an interesting version because the way we talk about it today, obviously, wasn't how you started. I don't know if I've shared this one. When I was a kid, I went to an unusual little school where there was a parent-teacher co-op. Parents would come in and they'd teach a little workshop. Kids could float around and learn whatever they wanted. It was awesome. A huge proponent of alternative education. Once a year, they would do this alternative currency thing. And I, I kind of think it probably had some influence on me. 
where they would just give all the teachers and parents some amount of these doy bucks. They were like cartoon dollars. They'd give them to them and just give them out to kids. They do good stuff. So you'd get them for all sorts of stuff. You get them for answering a question or drawing a nice picture or, oh, you opened the door for them, whatever. So it seeded this economy where the kids were like earning these and it was like super exciting and fun. And yes, the kids gambles a little on the side, but then it would all culminate at the end of two weeks, we'd have a big flea market and all the kids, we'd bring our toys down and we'd draw off a little section and we'd sell our toys and we'd buy other toys. And then there was an auction at the end where you'd use all the last of your stuff on some new toys that the school bought. It was like the best part of the year because you'd bring some garbage that you had. I was a kid of the 90s and then I'd get 80s, 70s He-Man toys, just some ancient relic, the big kids toys, super cool. And there was this breathing new life into things that were around us. We all just had garbage, but because we made up these imaginary paper dollars, we all became wealthier. That was a really, really powerful experience. So I think that when I think about the idea of making spontaneous new currencies, to me, it's obviously full of potential. So when my friend Kumavis came along and I saw this guy, Vitalik, give a talk, says we can make a transparent computer. It's not just Bitcoin. It's anyone can just make up new democracies and currencies and all this stuff. And I'd been working on trying to make an app that was a democracy and a debate system and micropayments, and they all hit problems. And suddenly being like, oh, here's a public transparent computer. You could do community currencies on it. You could do cooperatives. It was just obviously exciting. And to me, in my mind, it was always going to unlock that playful alternative economy where we each show up with whatever garbage we have, but we become a way richer because we valued what each other brought. And I think we're still working towards that. It still feels like we're building in all the financial primitives you need to have a rich global economy. But I think long-term, as it gets safer, and as you start feeling more confident going to links and feeling like you're not going to lose everything, but as we start to rekindle that feeling, you can go to websites and have a little fun and try new experiments and build some new experiments yourself. I think that that's the energy that we want to cultivate as an economy. I think we need to be coming up with new ways to collaborate, new ways to build and supporting each other. Yeah. So first of all, I'm definitely going to recommend my children's school tries the doy buck thing. That's a really, really cool way. It's also just a cool way to teach them about economics. So I love that idea. I think the hardest thing for me has been, I've learned so much about this world that I didn't understand by just doing it. And it's been really hard to explain to someone without them setting up a MetaMask, having a lot of crypto and trying it. I would try to find ways to do it. I think the fear thing comes back to the value of it. You get a message that you're about to get some ridiculous pass from the Board Ape Club that's worth $15,000, that we're not talking about He-Man suddenly. The value proposition and some of this stuff is insane, has been absolutely insane. So that's where the severity of like, okay, make sure you do this right. There's a forcing function for if I gave you $50,000 and had you walk into a restaurant, how would you feel? No one's going to take it from you, but have you ever had $50,000 in a bag next to you? You might just start looking around and that's the problem of the value assets versus the gaming. But I agree that just the notion of what it could do in the smaller things, I don't want to begrudge the fear factor too high because I don't want to convince people that it's not worth it. It's just that because some of these numbers, and that's what obviously gets the headlines, which gets the news stories, is where it takes it. So the thing I want to talk about was where MetaMask is the dominant wallet in this general purpose thing 
there's kind of an interesting problem that I could imagine you guys have thought about solving before is that there's all these, in any business, specialization versus generalization. And so I see this on Twitter, just communication-wise, but I'd be curious from the builder side is that the NFT community thinks that they're the entire world. The DeFi folks think they're the entire world. The traders think, and they don't understand this general nature. When you guys thought about building, what were your personal desires or thoughts for the business over? Let's just nail one thing. This is the thing we want to go after versus, no, we want to be the thing that people use for everything. I guess we kind of shoved ourselves into the general purpose thing to start by being an Ethereum wallet. Right off the bat, we weren't the first Ethereum wallet, but we were the first one to get significant traction and Ethereum's whole thing is being general purpose. So if we were to make a hard bet on any single use case or any single contract, we might as well have been betting on a single app chain. I really think basically if you believe in the core thesis of Ethereum, you should believe in general purpose wallets. And I think that Ethereum has really proved the heck out of the value of a general purpose chain. Not to say that some things might not benefit from being app chains, individual business things. Yeah, having a slight consortium around your business logic instead of one server. Yeah, that might be a net gain in some scenarios. But oh man, the composability of just slapping on some new ideas and building in relatively short time, having new products launching all the time is just too fun. And I think that while any one of us had lots of ideas, like when I first showed up, a good liquid democracy would be like my thing. I was like, if we make a good liquid democracy, oh uh, yeah, look out government. And then over time, I think that my impression of what a particular type of governance is good for has changed. I feel like it's like, ah, oh, well, there's not quite a one size fits all thing. And there's a problem with who you issue votes to and these things. And so I think that part of what I like about general purpose solutions is they give you room to evolve. So you can have one idea and we can build a product that's good for trying that out, but then also for like learning and being like, uh, we had it kind of wrong, but we didn't back ourselves into a corner. We made sure to build a platform where we could try things out, find out how they were flawed and then continue building forward. And I think that that betting on future creativity I think that's kind of the essence of general purposeness in general, from Ethereum to computing. We are betting that there are more uses for thinking machines than we have thought of yet. What are some examples of those bets that you made that you felt confident in that you learned through like the scars of actually launching them that, no, 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 this is wrong. We need to change it. Not all of these are things that I myself launched, but like I said, I was really into e-democracy before Ethereum came out, I was interested in instant runoff voting. And it was through exposure to Ethereum that I started learning things like the Arrows Theorem, where you start learning like, oh, well, any vote counting algorithm has trade-offs. It's not like everybody towed up. You'd have a perfect way of getting everyone on the same page. It's almost like how you count has political implications. And some people can feel disenfranchised with almost any choice that you make. And so there are almost inevitable situations, well, potentially inevitable, where a group of people deeply disagree. They can have mutually exclusive outcomes that they are, feel very strongly about. And those are the most challenging situations in civilization. And you can't just solve them with a vote or a better voting algorithm. And also, some of those problems get worsened when you use things like representative democracy. So if you're trying to get everybody to vote for just one person, 
Well, now each issue that divides one group can deepen a larger cultural schism. It's like, oh, we're trying to get people to agree as much as possible. We really need to minimize how many issues get bundled as like a must have. So yeah, I think that contributed to me believing more and more into like granular alignment where we don't have to make this a bulk deal. We can make a platform. We make lots of little consortia. We can build up Sympathico one purpose at a time. And hopefully we get good at building up senses of shared purpose and we can start building them to be larger and larger and accomplish bigger things together. I think it's a good transition to using the wallet for something like that, where you might have some assets you hold that you just want to keep forever. You might have things you're trading. You might be involved in staking. You might be in a DAO where you're voting. I just felt this myself where a real life problem where I was like, oh, I need to vote on something. But my voting tokens are with a bunch of valuable assets. I'm like, man, I have to go get that thing to go do this thing. And they're all together. Can you talk about this common problem people face of asset co-location and either the things that we can do to better prepare ourselves to interact with different parts of the world or things that you think the development side can do to make it easier for the users that want to cross these different worlds? We all want to do interesting things in the world, but pretty much every interesting thing you can do involves some risk. And the problem is that today, all our risky stuff is in these big chunks that we don't know how to think about individually. We don't know how to take small risks. If you're at a poker table, you know when you've got a weak hand, you're going to make a small bet. Today, people don't even know how to make a small bet with their crypto, especially if you've got it all in one account. The most obvious thing you can do today to make yourself safer is break up your assets into more accounts. Because even if you can't read your transactions, at least if you can say, oh, that's the account that has that, at least then you can reason that the worst thing that can happen from any activity with that account is compromising those assets. But from there, we have to go way further. The token allowance method was designed for this. Whenever you issue an allowance, you get to set an allowance. You don't have to always do unlimited allowance. And you probably should always make a practice. Make it the lowest allowance that will let you do your business. And that's a good practice. But unfortunately, every single contract that comes along today is choosing its own allowance equivalent. EIP 1155 is used for board apes, for example uses the set approve all. So there is no such thing as approving one ape. You can't put one ape on the table. You have to put all your apes in the table and then trust the game to respect that only one is at stake. That's not fun. It's literally impossible for a user to make a really informed decision there. You have to basically be all in on a contract you're interacting with to put your apes into it. And this is a real problem, partly because a lot of the interactions people are trying they just want to prove they have an NFT, for example, because they're trying to claim an airdrop. So there's this pattern, well, you got to prove that you have it. So how do you prove you have it? It's usually with a signature. And it is possible to have a signature that's innocuous, but the problem is people don't recognize the difference between an innocuous signature and a sensitive one. I think a good rule of thumb is if you can't read it, assume it's sensitive. I think we're going to be just increasingly shoving that in as UI norm scare you by default because there are safe things you can do. Signing with Ethereum is a generally safe thing. And it's a fine way to prove that you have a key without giving any allowances. If it's the sign in with Ethereum and it's a message and it says the domain name uh, in the message and has a timestamp, very, very high confidence that's not taking an asset from you. But if that asset is 
currently permitted to some contract that does accept that signature, then suddenly we can't be as sure about those guarantees. So what I think is the big missing piece in letting people make safe decisions like this is strong delegation. So today, like I said, every contract is hand-rolling its own delegation scheme. And that means that you never really know what you're putting at risk. And there's not really a coherent way of making sense of what permissions you're giving out. There's a bunch of these, fortunately. They're all happening at once. There were like some new ones that were coming along too. I made a Solidity library called Delegatable, that it's a tool for any contract to inherit delegation that's arbitrarily granular. For example, you could keep all of your sensitive NFTs on a cold wallet, but then send a delegation to one hot wallet that lets you do exactly what you want. So voting tokens, you could say, I want them to be able to vote. And then you can have all sorts of limits. You could say for the next month, you could say only if this other person also votes, you could sell your votes. You could then let that one delegate the vote to another. So you could delegate your vote to your hot wallet and then have that sign into a website and let that site vote for you. You can give it additional terms. You could say, but only for these candidates. I haven't decided, but one of those. So delegatable is designed to be this general purpose utility where any contract can let you take anything you can do and break it up to the smallest piece that you want and share just that permission with something else. So it's a general purpose framework for breaking up authority and sharing it out. There are a couple other projects, Delegate Cash and Worm XYZ, that are both aimed at specifically the NFT claiming use case. These are both ones where there's a registry, your cold wallet says, hey, that's my delegate. And so now sites that are doing things like you can claim NFTs here, if they'd like, they can check that registry. And if you've said, that's my account, they can just respect that and let you mint. That's a good pattern. So if you want to mint NFTs and you want to be really safe, you can just say, I'm going to only use sites that don't require me to use my hot keys, my main keys. If they require us using your main keys, there's something a little bit shady there. If you do have to use your main keys, only sign it if you can understand it. You got to be really skeptical. If you had a high bar and you said, I'm only going to sign stuff that does that, you could be safe that way. But I do suspect that at the end of the day, the scammers aren't going to be using that. The scammers are still going to be saying, please connect your main keys. It falls back onto the main users. The responsibility is right on you to make decisions about what risks you're willing to take for what opportunities. Like you said, if it's a $15,000 thing, are you going to hold to your principle that you only accept $15,000 promises from ones that are using your favorite delegation framework? It is a new practice to adopt. And it's up to each user to kind of do it themselves. I don't think I've ever done this, but I want to because I have the person who's designing something I use every day. When there's a message that something's been hacked and this issue has come up that you have unlimited allowances, I feel like there's a run for the average, maybe the power users, I can't tell, but like towards like a website like revoke.cash and you start to go through and do this. Can MetaMask build me? And I would probably pay whatever the fee you slapped up was a revoke all button. I think we actually have it in development. It's probably coming really soon. There's going to be a revoke button on your history to start. Revoke all is a little bit more ambitious because it requires having an index of all allowances you've ever issued. But I think that's a good long-term goal for sure. I always kind of feel like you got to have the safety button before you figure out the risk you're taking. So it's kind of like maybe our poker analogy won't work, but if we're going to design a game, I have to be able to fold. I just want to be like, stop. I'm out of this game and I sit out the next hand because I folded. 
And I think that revoking is kind of a good place to start for someone of like, okay, I don't know what I did. My friends told me to be worried. I just want to unplug this thing. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's a fundamental piece. And long-term, you should be able to revoke every single thing that you have. Again, that comes down to needing consistent delegation patterns. Because today, if we want a good revoke all button, we have to go down every specification for every kind of allowance for every kind of contract there is. How many different kind of vote delegation systems are there today? We have to now be like curators of every kind of delegation method, track every allowance you might give so that we can provide a, a revocation for every type. If we can come up with good, repeatable patterns for delegation, we can make it easier on wallets also to make it easier to revoke. So yeah, I think it's obvious must have long-term that you need to be able to like lock it down. It kind of is an ecosystem-wide thing. We're going to do everything we can. Yeah. I like how you're approaching it from the first principle, like the root problem is that all these different contracts that we're playing with, because what ends up happening or surprises me, and maybe it's just from running around this crazy world, is when I do go to that to see all the allowances that are outstanding, that were unlimited, it's a long list of stuff I have totally forgotten about. I think that that's another security and fear balance is you're like, oh man, I didn't remember I gave unlimited allowances last year for something that I totally forgot about. And it's just not on my mind. Whereas like, you know, the board ape drop, that's going to be on your mind. And I mean, there is a thing where if it's been that long and nothing went wrong, that might've been an okay one. It probably was. Some of these contracts are immutable. If it's immutable and it is a safe contract, the dream is that we can like increasingly prove that some things actually are safe. Granting an allowance isn't as big a deal in those cases. There's a rug pull happening right now. Please revoke all your allowances. That's a hot situation to be in because it almost implies there's this manual theft happening and that it's not too late. We're definitely going to make that as easy as possible, but it feels like we really need to be making people safe before they hand the keys to their castle away to bandits also. It gets back to this current problem. I came from traditional investing. And I think people assume that systems are complex and everything works. But if you ever tear apart a system, you're like, oh man, it's messy. People are making mistakes every day on hundreds of billion dollar trades. And you know what they do? There's a language of reversing and breaking and erasing and redoing and turning it back. And it's very gray and it's power and authority that lets something like this happen. The law of the jungle is who can have more authority over the other. And the immutability part is amazing to me because I have these mixed feelings because I don't like that people have fear or they were duped into doing something. Now, personally, and I, I haven't been hacked, I haven't been in part of the situations. It's because they get so much attention that that puts the fear in you. And I don't think that's a bad thing because it makes you worry and think about ways to make the system better. Every time it's happened, when someone shows you and you talk to someone who is more knowledgeable at not that damn level, but somebody that like understands it, they're like, Eric, look what this person had to do to get to this level of loss. It really had to click through a lot of things. Now, maybe there was an alarm bell, but like they click some stuff that exposed them to a theft as opposed to someone coming into your house and stealing your stuff. I've heard that. I've heard that kind of take. And I think it's like, as a wallet developer, we do not get the luxury of victim blaming when this thing happens. The law at the end of the day is, does a user feel like the computer and software did right by them? And it's a personal decision. And so each person who feels like they experienced the loss, that's a legitimate feeling. 
even if it was like a rug pull, even if they were being greedy and they were like just totally overreaching, clicking some random scammer looking thing on Twitter, at the end of the day, it always feels like there's an opportunity for us to create systems that keep people safer in situations like that. Now, I don't want to create systems that are just tying people's hands. I think I am betting that we can make people safe even when empowered to make their own decisions. But I sure do believe that the more information we give people at the right time, the more we might be able to keep them safer. I'm not going to always be able to keep everybody safe from, let's say, making a bad investment because at the end of the day, investments are about taking risk. It's about thinking that some outcome is going to be good. And because you have that unique insight is why you think you're going to be uniquely rewarded for it. But I think that the gap between where we are and where that ideal place where people only are losing what feels like informed investment decisions, you just have a long way to go. There's so many opportunities for us to safety nets in place. I couldn't agree with you more. That's why I think it's exciting that you're working on it. The question that comes up, and I just don't know, and obviously you've seen it from the founding of Benamass to today, is people always seem to be bothered by the UX or the innovation of the application and where it is and where it's going. And obviously you guys are working hard and making all these changes. Where do you think that sentiment comes from? I mean, lots of places. Part of it is we want to build faster than we do. People have ideas all the time and you have ideas for things that you use. So I think that people complaining is the privilege of having users. Now it can kind of suck, but legitimately we can improve. And it's true also that we haven't improved the user interface as much as we might have liked to in the last few years. And that has been because we've been doing a couple more infrastructural things. Now, if you looked at a couple years ago versus today, I think you'd be surprised how much has changed. There's a little bit of a boiling the frog approach thing, but it's true that a lot of the broad strokes have been consistent. And we've been doing a lot of research on what the next set of major changes would be to the interface. It's not just about cleaning it up and just making it look pretty. It's very much about making sure that the user can increasingly make informed decisions as they use an increasingly sophisticated system. So we're entering a time where people are using multi-chain more and more and where people want to use contract accounts and where contract accounts are likely to be the absolute norm relatively soon. So there's some serious foundational rethinking to the interface that we're working on. And yeah, there are so many, so many ways to improve. I think that sometimes people act like it's just a UX problem holding back adoption. I don't think it's just UX. I think that the UX is very much in a tight partnership with the underlying systems. And some of them have to evolve. They have to scale. We have to get account abstraction. We have to get privacy. We have to get reusable general purpose delegation systems. You have to get readable transactions. These are things where, well, you can easily lump them as UX and say the UX has to improve. But by saying that, you're almost saying all of this needs to improve. And I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that. This stuff all does need to improve. We're all figuring out as we go to some degree. I think when this argument comes up, and it's come up in the past where people we've interviewed talk about how when the demand is so high, people will jump through hoops to learn the new language. As opposed to if you want to get someone to just casually try it, you need to lower the language to a more simpler component. I think that's true. I think that by being such a like high value environment, we get away with not everything being perfectly smooth. 
we don't have to wax the floors for people to come charging in our product. So at the same time, people are getting hurt at the other end. So I think there's a degree to which we want to make the platform safer, not just user friendlier, because if we just made it friendlier, we could literally just be hurting more people. There's an actual balance there. So of those kind of main components, how do you think about the prioritizations of privacy, delegatable security? I'm thinking about, I don't know if the seed phrase stuff goes into the abstraction or how do you think about the priorities? I think that we, for historical reasons, are keeping care of our existing users. So the seed phrase is at least around for migration purposes. Now, I know that that's a little contentious at the protocol layer today, where a lot of the account abstraction work is focused on 4337, which doesn't benefit existing account holders at all. And it's part of why I co-authored EIP 5003, which would give EOA holders a way to migrate into contract accounts, which I think would be great. And it's, I guess, up to the protocol devs, whether or not we create migration paths or not. But I think that we've got a long way to go for different ways of authorizing accounts and for granting different levels of authority. And in order to explore the, the enormous complexity of those dimensions, that's why MetaMask is building this Snaps plugin system where you can extend the wallet with new things. It includes new account types, new hardware wallets, or new contract accounts. And then it'll also let you hold just new things in your wallet, like delegations. And by making it a wallet extension framework, we can be compatible with any number of new readability standards. And so we're really kind of betting on a phase of experimentation. I think that we do still have ways to go. I've been saying that for a while. Some people would say like, hey, the staff system has taken a while to build out. Maybe the ecosystem's so mature, it's time to just make a huge bet on like a given recovery scheme. Yeah, maybe. I think ingenuity and creativity is really, really powerful. And so currently taking a swing at platformizing account management and asset management itself. All right. So let's break that down. For the people that aren't reading EIPs, can you explain the current standard, how you mentioned that doesn't help current holders and this contracting notion? And then let's get into snaps after that. You might've heard people like Vitalik promoting EIP 4337. They call it the account abstraction without a protocol change proposal. And what it does is it introduces a standard fee market for contract accounts basically. And so by introducing a fee market, it takes one of the big burdens of making contract accounts off the contract account author. In the past, each contract account needed to handle, well, how are we relaying our transactions? So Gnosis Safe, every time you sign transactions on it, you're like sending it to their server, going to relay with one of your main accounts. So you're either still paying the gas. So you have to have Ether in an externally owned account, not just the contract account. So the contract account can't pay for its own gas. So that's a little weird. And there's some like awkwardness around that. 4337, it makes an independent fee market. So now contract accounts can pay for their own gas. That contract account could be a traditional key held account. It could be a multi-sig. It could be some new signer, like some new advanced cryptography that's safer against quantum or who knows what. And so that's cool. And it means that it's easier to make contract accounts. Contract accounts are open-ended. They can be anything. It's almost like Let's not dive down that rabbit hole. Let's just imagine it's everything you want to be eventually. What I was pointing out is that today, MetaMask users are using these traditional accounts called EOAs or externally owned accounts. They're held by a private key generated by your secret recovery phrase. Those accounts are stuck just being single signer accounts. 
you can't upgrade them. So if you wanted to upgrade your authority to a contract account, today it means going down your whole asset list, going through the click and send and transaction fee on every single one. Some of those assets may be wound up. They may be staked. Some of them may be non-transferable contracts you own. You may actually not even be able to transfer some of the things you have. I covered this at EIP 5003, which is a way where those EOA accounts can say, hey, I'd like to be a contract now and publish some code at their address. And now it's a contract and it can have whatever multi-sig or whatever authority scheme you want. I think that that's really valuable for existing users. I think it would be nice to reward everyone in the current ecosystem with a smooth migration path to higher security. But I also understand that protocol dev time is precious. Protocol changes are expensive things. And so we have to decide, you know, as community, whether we want to be betting on taking everybody with us or whether we're just going to say like, look, you're all early adopters, just keep up with the churn ecosystem philosophy question. That's fascinating. Snaps, the guy that we're talking about after that, what's an example of someone building on Snaps and how that could help the existing users today? One of the Snaps APIs we've got today, we call a transaction insight snap. These are snaps that can actually provide extra information or context on the confirmation screen. One thing we can do, so we can partner with a simulation service and we can simulate transactions. Simulations aren't always perfect. They could be sent to a contract that's going to have a condition and then change what it does depending on if it gets front row. So if you want to keep somebody really safe, you have more than one strategy. You maybe simulate, but you maybe also have a registry of known fishers. And maybe you also have maybe a description as written by the original contract's author. That'd be like EIP 719. There's actually lots of different strategies and ways you could try to keep somebody safer. And we don't really want to just pick one. Ideally, we can help aggregate a whole bunch of warning signals and keep you as safe as possible. This is one way to do that. Uh, you'll be able to subscribe to any number of safety services and they could each show you right in the wallet confirmation what they think of what you're considering doing. Another one is for new blockchains. So potentially having your Bitcoin, your Cosmos, or your Solana right in your MetaMask. Say what you want about any one of those, but you might want to be able to keep them all in one place and make it a little bit easier to do that. And then, of course, contract accounts. So being able to load new contract accounts right in the wallet and use different accounts as authorizers for your other accounts just another way of letting you manage whatever assets and accounts you want in one place and continue just browsing web three like normal today like a lot of contract accounts you'll have to do some weird stuff either the website will have to be built for that contract account or you'll have to use a proprietary uh, login scan or whatever this will make it so any contract account can work with anything metamask works with which is pretty cool and so it could be multi-sigs or one i'm really looking forward to is just the delegation one if I want to be able to sign a message with a cold wallet and now let's say just vote on behalf of my cold wallet with my hot wallet, I should basically be able to see that account, but it's not the full account. It's attenuated account. This account, it's just good for voting. It can't send away the tokens. And it's now suddenly you can feel confident that you could be clicking those website links again and voting and having a little more fun on the internet with some serious confidence that you're not going to lose those tokens. To understand Snaps and why it's taken so long to build, is the way to think about it that anyone, that you built an ecosystem where anyone could build a Snap and if they come up with a cool way, I can kind of make my MetaMask do more things? 
Or is this like when I go into my advanced setting and you guys say, try this new gas feature and I click it and I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. The reason it's taken a while is because we are building for the permissionless extensibility. Look, if we want you to be able to subscribe to security notices from any contract, then you need to be able to have tons of these. They need to be low trust. Installing one needs to expose you to very little risk. Yeah, it meant that we did a whole lot of work on secure sandboxing within the browser, which was unexplored region. We actually issued some grants to Agoric to help us. They were building a lot of the infrastructure we built that on top of. Yeah, so the sandboxing was big. The permission system was big. Getting just all the UI around managing them. There's been a lot of things in between. It's been a long road, but the reward I think is going to be finally having a wallet that is as extensible as the blockchain that it's trying to serve. That's really cool. We end these podcasts kind of the same question every time. What are you most excited to build over the next six months? And what are you excited to build over the next six years? Just months and six years? I tend to have a lot of side projects and I never know which one's going to end up being the one that I build. I have a lot of things I'm excited to build right now. I want to build like an extensible chess game where anyone can come up with their own pieces and then agree to play games with each other. Will the pieces be able to do different things? Yeah, yeah. You'd make up your own rules for the new pieces you make and then they should interoperate. I think that'd be fun. That's probably in the range of six months if that ends up being what I do. But realistically, I think fleshing out delegatable and making it work with contract accounts and making its transactions readable. I think transaction readability and delegation and contract accounts are really the next six months hottest thing. Snaps is going to tie those things together really well. And then six years, I hope that all of this stuff just works great and you're able to just invite your friends, no frills, with a link and they'll be educated. MetaMask Learn will be there for them and make sense of the whole thing for them and they'll understand exactly how to safely click a link and not get burned. I love it. I'm excited to keep playing on the internet and seeing what's possible. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for your time, Rick. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 